All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen, with the Global Comet, Comet, the Global Climate Conference, COP28, starting this week. Global warming rhetoric is being ramped up into high gear. Last week, over 200 medical journals called on the World Health Organization to declare an immediate emergency on the topic of climate change. Factor this rhetoric into the growing calls for censorship of misinformation, and you got yourself a recipe for overt authoritarianism. We're going to be talking about all this and more in episode 425 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me, I've got the full crew. I got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Oh my god. I am doing great. I'm sorry. I muted myself again. I thought I'd start off the show with screwing up something technical right off the bat. But uh, yeah, well, I said comet instead of climate. So uh we're over two on start. Yeah, here. off to a off to a uh, rip roaring start here. So uh you know there are this is what people... happens when we take a week off. This is what that's happens. true. That's true. You know, th- there are a few people that enjoy uh eating turkey more than me. Um I <laughs> I have now had my fill. I have had plenty of turkey. Um, I save stuff to make turkey soup, but I think uh, I'm not going to do that. I think I've had all I can handle. So that's that. <laughs> Very nice. Also joining us, we've got Justin Haskins, director of the Socialism Research Center here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? You know, I'm not. I'm not doing well. I'm not. Uh-oh. Hold on. Wait a second. Let me get the. Let me get the lighting that more in in the mood here. Oh, oh my gosh. It's a dark. It's a dark time. <laughs> dark time for all of us because I don't know if you've heard, but we're on a path. We're Uh-oh. on a path to global destruction. We're mm. all gonna die. We're Uh-oh. all gonna die. And um, if we don't all become like Greta Thunberg, it's all over for us. So, because I know people are too lazy to become like Greta, I am in pre mourning. I'm wow. not in mourning yet. I'm pre mourning. Wow. I haven't gotten to the mourning phase, but I'm I'm working my way up to it. So. Hopefully you guys can help me out today. A little bit of therapy help me feel a little bit better. So. Wow. Okay. So me and Jim, yeah. that we're we're one for three because uh, clearly Justin is on point. He even had light shows uh, ready, lighting effects, I and did. all of that. I had to bring him. us back up. I had to bring us back up. We were really <laughs> struggling there. Although I was gonna, I was gonna bail you out with a comet remark because uh-huh. climate change is like a comet that is right. streaking toward the Earth, wiping us all out. Good but point. then Good Jim point. screwed what up. You're, and, what you're saying is and, we need Bruce Willis to save us. Also joining us, we have Chris Helgo, editorial director at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing good, and uh, I'm looking forward to the big debate tonight, Donnie, between Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis. Big on debate. Hannity, I cannot wait. Can't oh wait. I think, I think Ron DeSantis is going to wipe the floor with good old Gavin and his hair. <laughs> He's as a mop. <laughs> 
Does anyone have any comments on this? Because I was going to make a joke about this after I told everybody that uh, before we get going that you can join the show a day earlier if you're an audio-only listener that's listening on iTunes that you should leave a review for us on iTunes. But if you want, you could join the show earlier, a day earlier on Thursdays at noon Central Time where we are live streaming on Facebook and Twitter and Rumble and YouTube and all of that. And if you want to jump in the conversation, you can. Uh, throw your comments and questions in there. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. But yeah, before, you know, after I said all of that, I was going to bring up this debate and whether or not anyone was going to watch it, if this is going to even register when it came to the political theater that's going on. Or Dude, I think more people are going to watch this than the Super Bowl. I just... <laughs> <laughs> More than the MASH reunion, this I mean the What's, MASH finale, which Super the Seinfeld finale combined. Not the football Super Bowl. <laughs> look, look, uh, hold on, let me bring my lights back up. All right, look, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is stupid. This is a stupid, stupid debate. And here's why it's a stupid debate. This does nothing to help Ron DeSantis. Nothing. I don't see how this helps Ron DeSantis even slightly because Ron DeSantis is not running against Gavin Newsom. I don't know if anyone in the Ron DeSantis camp has informed him of that, but, but Gavin Newsom isn't president. He's not on the ticket. He's not running. And right now we're still in primary season and there is a candidate. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He used to be president of the United States. His name is Donnie Trump and Donnie Trump is up by like 40 points in the polls. And if you're Ron DeSantis and you want to win, become president of the United States, which I, I thought was the point of this whole campaign, then you have to beat Trump. And Trump is not going to be at the debate like he hasn't been at any other debates. He's not going to be at this debate either. Oh, wouldn't that be Gavin great if Newsom. he showed up? What if you so, heard like the, the, the crash of glass and he walked out like Stone Cold Steve <laughs> well, Austin would, right into the I middle mean, of the debate? That would be the best thing ever. That would, but that would just prove my point even <laughs> First of all, if that happens, it would be unbelievable. Second of all, <laughs> if it happens, that would actually prove my point even further that this is a stupid move for Ron DeSantis because that would ensure 100%. Trump's at like 99%. That would put him at 100% for the primary if he did that. So there's nothing good that can come from this. If you're, if you're Gavin Newsom, you really don't have anything to lose because what? He's not going to lose in California ever, right? The only reason he's doing it, I guess, is because he wants to be the next man up in case uh, Joe Biden dies tomorrow, which could happen, right? Or or something like that, or gets impeached or whatever. He wants to be the next person up, and he wants to show that he can fight with you know the conservatives and whatever and be a face and get some visibility. So this helps Gavin Newsom. It does nothing to help Ron DeSantis. And it's just a giant, it's just a giant waste of time. I don't even know what the point of this is. They're not federal lawmakers, either of them. So I don't live in Florida and I don't live in California. So even the policies themselves have no impact on me whatsoever. This uh, is this, this is a, no, no, no. This is a, a publicity stunt, right? Like he's, yeah, like you said, I he's agree. down 40 points or something. Start chucking Hail Marys. Just start chucking this them down the field do and see what happens, this, man. I agree with you. Okay, okay. Just one last thing, and then I'll let I'll let Jim talk. So I agree that that it is time to start. If you're if you're the Ron DeSantis people, and I'm not in any way rooting for Ron DeSantis, by the way. I'm just saying if you're in the Ron, if I'm in the Ron DeSantis camp, and I'm advising him, and I'm saying, well, we've got to start chucking hail marys, right? You don't chuck hail marys by fighting with Gavin Newsom. That does nothing. You have to start fighting with Donald Trump. Like, that's your only chance. Now, I know that's going to make all the Trump people mad. I understand that, and that's why they don't do it. 
But the reality is, if you're not going to be able to beat up Trump enough, if that's even possible, but if you, if you can't beat him up enough Spoiler to alert, take the primary, <laughs> if you can't do that, then why are you in the race? Get out. What's the point of this? This is all just stupid and pointless. No, he's going to get up. He's going to get up on stage and he's going to pull an Elon Musk in that CNBC uh, live event. And he's just going to tell Gavin Newsom to go. F himself. <laughs> that That'll get probably, headlines. That would probably help him a little bit, actually, if he did that. <laughs> but not enough to beat Trump because Trump will find a way to top that. That's the most Trump thing you could do. This is this yeah. is just a well, waste yeah, Jim. Time. Jim, uh, I'm sure you have some comments. My mind is just swimming in in professional wrestling analogies. I'm just expecting, you know, uh, I'm just expecting Ron DeSantis to give uh, Gavin Newsom a choke slam or something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, Steve Austin's you know signature move in the that got the crowd going uh, for uh, wrestling WWE was to, was to smash two cans of beer together and just, uh, you know, crush them and, and, and down them. Of course, uh, Donald Trump doesn't, uh, doesn't drink alcohol famously. He's a teetotaler, but I could see him, I had in my mind, you know, he smashes two cans of diet Coke together and just and pours them down <laughs> after smashing into the set, like the Kool-Aid guy, uh, from back <laughs> in the seventies. So, well, I mean, actually you, you and I, and Justin and some others exchanged some emails, I'm sorry, texts about, this debate. Um, and I think the first text in the text thread was, Oh my God, I forgot this was even happening. You know, it's this week, goodness gracious. And, uh, and Justin, of course, as he had just articulated, thinks it's a, a big waste of time and a big, uh, and probably a big loser, just really nothing DeSantis can get out of this. And I, and I noted in that text thread, it's like, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, because at the time, the uh, Republican, the first Republican debate was happening and the stage was pretty full, actually should have been actually more full. Uh, Larry Elder should have been on that stage as well. Um, but putting that aside, you know, DeSantis, while he was the leading um, leading in the polls among that group, minus the former president, um, he needed to do something to get, you know, to set himself up as the front runner, right? The legit front runner or the non-Trump uh, choice as a front runner. So, Hey, why not just uh, debate this clown from California, uh, Gavin Newsom, who who's who's going himself is going on a tour. He's he's acting a little bit like president, as Justin pointed out. He's um, he's warming up in the bullpen, as it were, uh, just in case somebody comes to their senses and says, Joe Biden, you need to step aside. What I think is actually really funny is that uh, the reason Joe Biden won't step aside and the reason the pressure for him to not run is because of his vice presidential pick probably the only Democrat in America who would have a less of a chance of beating Donald Trump is Kamala Harris. <laughs> so they are completely stuck. So as long as Joe Biden is breathing, uh, he's going to be the nominee and uh, Trump's going to be the nominee too, you know, based on everything we see right now. So uh, yeah, today, tonight might be interesting. It might be good for DeSantis setting himself up for maybe another four years from now. I don't know, but um, one thing that the only good thing, the only interesting thing I think about this will be to look at Gavin Newsom and see how he defends running a state, a state that is basically quickly deteriorating into its own third world country compared to Florida, where all the metrics that are positive for human activity, you know, for human life are on the rise and everything, every metric you could measure that makes life more miserable is on the rise in California. It's billed as the as the red state versus blue state debate. So I don't know if this is going to be about uh, national issues as much as it's going to be the governing model 
of Newsom versus the governing model of DeSantis. And I hope that's what it is because the origins of this were during the pandemic, uh, Gavin Newsom, you know, was was going after Ron DeSantis for his you know, pandemic policies. And uh, DeSantis, you know, was was coming back at uh, Newsom saying, well, wait a second, look at your your pandemic policies. So I hope that it is more about um the the different uh, policy approaches between these two uh, governors, but this, we'll, this I, is, I will say, this Go. is just just going just really quick on that. This is high risk for Ron DeSantis and very little reward because if he loses this debate, clearly, if he if he loses, then there is literally he went from two percent chance of coming back and beating Trump to zero percent. So there is yeah, no, it, it, there is no benefit. It is all harm that could happen. Yeah. And I just don't. And it seems like in the, in the primary debates uh, where he's surrounded by Republicans, he's almost tried to take like a little bit of like a backseat and not like been out there and attacking people like Vivek or something like that. So like, he's got to completely change his strategy going into this, but uh, you can't just sit back and let, you know, Kevin Newsom run circles around him or something. I don't. All right, we got we got a ton to talk about. I don't care about this anyways. This is <laughs> this is the worst debate ever. No one's gonna watch it. There's no if unless First it generates some like headlines or some crazy clips or something. This is a total waste of ten minutes that we just talked. Chris, about Chris it. might watch so it, and I'll and I'll watch it if Chris I'll tells me it. I should watch it. Okay, all right, yeah. So you there. Report back to me tomorrow, Chris. Okay, we'll do. Uh, we got a ton to talk about, um, and we have a Davos watch for the end of the episode. So, regardless of how long we're going, we're doing Davos watch. So, Christine, stay on point. But anyways, we uh, got a lot to talk about. COP twenty eight, big climate summit, is starting today. Conference is like two weeks long. Jim, are they usually two weeks long? This this seems kind of egregiously long. No, no, it's always two weeks. Yeah, it's always two weeks. Okay, mm -hmm. so our fearless leader, President uh, James Taylor, is heading over to Dubai with a small delegation of so-called climate deniers. The conference is being held in Dubai, which uh, has been the location of a lot of these sort of globalist conference of the past several years. I know the World Economic Forum has hosted a few summits in Dubai. The, the conference will feature delegates from essentially every country in the entire world. Dubai, of course, is in the United Arab Emirates, which is still considered a petrol state despite its modern day attempts to diversify its economy. They are a member of OPEC. And as of 2018, the oil and gas sector of the country made up 26% of the United Arab Emirates overall GDP. So, of course, this is the perfect setting to plan the worldwide abandonment of fossil fuels, right? I mean, that just makes all the sense in the world. So, uh, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to you first, Jim. What what uh, what are you looking forward to most about this summit? Is it going to be John Kerry's speech, the empty promises, and virtue signaling, or or perhaps we could look forward to Al Gore mustering up some faux righteous anger like he did at Davos this year? Yeah, uh, I, I went to one. I've gone to one cop. I went to Paris in 2015. And, uh, you know, it was it was interesting. I got I got about I got to within about 30 yards of Al Gore. Um, he was there was a scrum around him and stuff. I mean, um, you know, they say they say Washington, D.C. is Hollywood for ugly people. Um, the cop, uh, a, a U.N. climate conference is Hollywood for ugly grifters uh, because that's all. <laughs> You see there is that. And if Andy can bring it back up on the screen, um, the, the first link in your show notes today 
Donnie has a is from Reuters and has a picture. Uh, and on the picture, it has these. Uh, yeah, there it is. Uh, you know, this is these are climate activists. By the way, I love the caption, too. It just makes it very clear that these are not actual uh, oil company CEOs. These are. <laughs> Climate activists disguised as CEOs of major. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have known that. So I'm glad. Disguised. That's a perfect use of the term too. As if they're going to try to like walk into a board meeting or something like right. that. Like yeah. James Bond. Wonderful disguises. <laughs> but you know this this picture here, and and for those just listening to the podcast and not watching it, it's it's uh, what for five guys in some of them are in tuxes, others they're in dark suits and they're smoking cigars and they're toasting champagne and they got fistful of cash. And um, so that's the uh, climate activists idea. They're also sitting outside, by the way. They're also sitting outside. <laughs> like well, almost people. Are those, <laughs> gold, are, those are, are those gold bars on the edge there? That's a pile Is, of gold bars. Yep. Yep. So I think that's an Aztec pyramid. So where's actually. Bob Menendez? <laughs> yeah, right. Ah, good one. Yeah, but, but no one's going to watch your uh, your performance art inside. Inside. That's something you got to do. That's street theater, baby. Uh, but th this image has it exactly backwards. Um you know, it's not the fossil fuel titans living it up with champagne and fistful of cash. It's the grifters at the United Nations Climate Conference that do that. Um, and it's a, it, at least you can say this about the CEO of a fossil fuel company. At least they keep the world going. At least they provide um, energy that makes modern life remotely possible. It keeps our, our houses warm. It keeps our, our cars running. It keeps our, our food being grown. And, and sewn and, and delivered to grocery stores. Um, the grifters at the United Nations, they do nothing to benefit society. In fact, this, they do the opposite. They rake in all of this cash, all of this cash um, and, and stuff their pockets, all corruption, and they provide nothing for society. In fact, they work against the producers of society constantly. So, uh, you know, that's the thing that really um, that tickled me about your show notes today was that picture. It's like, because it's absolutely bizarro reverse world. Because yeah, the, yeah. the reality is that all the grift and all the all those fat cats who who are you know just greedy and ah, living it up, those are the people at the UN climate conferences, <laughs> right? Yeah, and apparently you know uh, it's taking place in Dubai, like I said. So officials of the United Arab Emirates, they're apparently mm -hmm. trying to sell the vision of a low carbon future that includes and not shuns fossil fuel so that's their objective apparently uh topics on tap for the conference will include phasing out coal and scaling up carbon capture technology so how is this supposed to work like on one side you have people saying that the fossil fuel industry has to shift to clean energy which is a friendly way of saying end their operations completely and then on the other side hosting the event is like ah how about no how about we just cut back a little bit right mm -hmm. so justin what, what's your insight into the kind of the interpolitics of this kind of uh seemingly contradictory point of view of of the parties involved well i think i think that the, the nice thing about these conferences is that they're inclusive and um the inclusivity knows no ends do you think and, they'll let James speak? <laughs> well, they're not that inclusive, but they're but they're <laughs> they're inclusive enough that they let that they let all the players in the world come to the table, regardless of how terrible they are. They're human rights violators. That's the wonderful thing about the United Nations. And so the you know China and people like that, like they send delegations to these to these conferences and 
I mean, China is by far the, the most notorious liar when it comes to their climate change commitments, right? So they come out and they say that they're going to do this or do that, upscale their renewable energy efforts, or they're going to start closing coal plants. And then before you know it, they're opening a new coal plant. Then they're opening 10 new coal plants. And then they're doing they're increasing their methane emissions by you know massive amounts, right? And the real purpose, I think, of this is, in, in a sense, okay, so you got to remember, this is a government conference. So these are all governments. These are all politicians, or as I like to say, liars. They're all there. And, and the thing you have to understand is that the, the political wrangling is primarily focused on how do we improve our position, whoever we are, come, going to the conference, right? And so how do we make sure that we're on the winning side of all of this in the future? So there's a bunch of different ways you can be on the winning side. You can be on the winning side because um, you're you're all it's already easy for you to do renewable energy. So forcing renewable energy mandates on other people brings them down and actually kind of creates some parity in that sense. So maybe the internal politics in your European northern European country or whatever make it you know, necessary to go into renewable. So you want everyone else to be dragged down too. maybe you're China or you're someone like that or India. And your goal is uh, I want to force everyone else to increase their energy costs. And I'll just lie and pretend that I'm going to do the same thing, but I won't. And my advantage in terms of manufacturing and other things is going to continue to expand. Then you've got people who just want to improve their own personal political position. That's all that it's about. It's nothing to do with policy at all. And it's just how do I make voters think in my country or internationally that I'm, you know, a climate change warrior. There's all sorts of different dynamics here. None of them are actually focused on what they say they're focused on, which is saving the world from this supposed existential threat of climate change. And that's that's really the most important takeaway from it. And and you don't even have to you don't even have to say, well, yeah, of course you think that you work at the Harlan Institute, you're you know a climate denier or whatever. But Greta Greta Thunberg agrees with me too. Like even the far left wing people would agree. She would agree that these people don't actually believe any of the things that they say. Like they don't actually want to do the things that they say they're going to do. And the very fact that that China is is invited to these meetings and treated as though they're not constantly lying to everybody is proof of it. Now, what what a lot of the developing nations in places like Africa want from this is money. They want money from the West. They want the West to pay them money to adopt renewable energy efforts, to build up their infrastructure for climate change, equity and social justice and all of that. And what, what basically everyone agrees on at the conference is that they want America to foot more and more of the bill and to do and, and to uh, uh, take on more and more of these gigantic left-wing projects internationally and to do more things to gut their own economy of, of affordable energy and reliable energy. That's what we all want. They all agree on that. Everybody yeah there has something to gain from the United States going down a notch or paying more money or doing something. This has nothing, there's nothing good for the United States at these conferences ever. Uh, you're, you're reading ahead to my notes because there's another task for the conference, uh, which is to launch the world's first climate damage fund. Has anyone heard of this before? It's to help countries that have already suffered irreparable damage from climate change impacts such as drought, 
floods and rising exactly. sea levels, right? So, exactly. so, so when there's a drought, the United States has got to pay some country in South Africa, you know, money, Southern Africa, money to because we're somehow responsible for their drought. Like that's yeah, that's I, all I, this stuff is. I, I'm going to you next, Chris. But uh, I mean, isn't this great news, everybody? So, so someday soon, the government is going to take is going to tax money away from you, send <clears> it through some climate damage slush fund so that a fraction of it can pour into the coffers of some corrupt third world country that will probably do nothing to alleviate any of the effects of climate change. I bet you feel the guilt of your climate sins lifting off your shoulders as we speak. But uh, but yeah, Chris, so the United States and the European Union have already agreed to this, and the meetings right. will take place right. to see if China and the United Arab Emirates will contribute as well. So global wealth distribution, this is what we need. What are your thoughts about this? I read a story about this this morning. I went to the COP28 website, then I've read some stories. The first thing they agreed upon was this climate damage fund, and uh, Britain already pledged $100 million. United States pledged 17.5 million. I think Germany pledged something like 80 million. So the donations or whatever you want to call them are already coming in. And I think that was one of the, the you know, the biggest um, objectives of this was to, uh, you know, put in place this climate damage fund. Because I think once it's in place, there's going to be an annual, um, uh, you know, forced um, uh, payment system. And yeah, the uh, the so-called uh, northern hemisphere and the developed countries, the, you know, Western state or countries are going to have to uh, pay uh, climate reparations, whatever you want to call it. And I think that it's just going to keep going up. Uh, one other thing uh, I, I checked this morning was uh, CO2 emissions by country, just just to get the most um, uh, recent and accurate uh, measure. Uh, clim- uh, China has double the CO2 emissions of the United States, double. So if this the, the, this whole notion that the United States is this, you know, carbon spewing economy and and we're you know the 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 worst of the worst, it's just simply not true. And like Justin said, we can't trust China. So why are we even engaging with them in in this you know uh, sphere? I do not know. Yeah, you know, it seems like a lot of these these COP uh, conferences they're always trying to like push for some sort of like distribution wealth distribution for lack of a better term but you know this idea of uh united states footing a large portion of the bill and you know other countries uh you've got 12 years to turn the ship around and then maybe you'll start picking up a bit of the tab and it seems like this is uh okay we actually did it and we're not going to try to turn it into some type of you know sugarcoat it and present it as some sort of investment or something They're like now nah, we're just going to call it climate damage fund and it's exactly what you think it is uh what are your thoughts on all this jim well, um, actually, in our in our audience or in the in the chat is uh, Sterling Burnett, who's the head of our Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy here at the Heartland Institute, uh, and he'd probably put in chat if I screw this up. But um, there are no there's no such thing as a climate refugee. That's it's completely made up. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. There are no people around the world who are forced out of where they are right now, where they live and forced to go somewhere else because humans have changed the climate in their in their locality that they can no longer live there. They don't exist and they will not exist in the very near future. Um, and by very near, I mean probably a thousand years, these people won't exist. Um, and, and so this, it's all, like I said in the beginning, it's all grip, it's all a lie, it's all a scam. It's a redistribution of wealth plan. It is not a save the planet plan. 
And to give one one of my favorite examples of uh, for I don't know twenty years, twenty five years. What what was that island um, for the CBS show Survivor? Begins with a V, V, v and Natu or something like that. Vanatu. Uh, Vanatu. There you go. In the in the South Pacific. And we, I was told twenty five years ago <laughs> that by now that island was going to be pretty much completely swamped by seawater because of rising sea levels. And uh, Sterling Burnett, get ready <laughs> in the chat because I believe that the uh, sea level has actually dropped on that island. And that's not because sea levels have dropped. It's because the island has actually come up. And this, this, um, this idea, and again, we've been told for decades that island people are going to be like swimming, swimming to the continents because they're just overrun, because we are driving SUVs. It's a complete scam. And that's why Wait. I'm really glad that James Taylor and our friends at CFACT are going to be at COP28 in Dubai because as we were there in Paris, I forget what number that was. Was that, I don't know, 18, I think? There he is. Um, actually, if you look on the screen, that picture, that's a picture I took of him. There was a wanted poster, wanted like a criminal for James Taylor in Paris for the COP over there. So I took that picture and now I've used it on a graphic for the Art Institute's appearance uh, at the COP in uh, United Arab Emirates. But the climate refugees are a complete myth. And so we are going to, and again, I think somebody else mentioned in the chat, what's happening is that we are we are not letting the developing world, <coughs> the, the nuclear, coal, and natural gas energy they need to pull their entire societies out of poverty. Instead, we're going to steal money from taxpayers in the West and give it to the kleptocratic leaders of those countries to put in their pockets while the people still live in poverty, in energy poverty, and uh, financial and food poverty. It's ridiculous and and the, the idea that there's very few people that will that will actually go to these conferences like the Heartland Institute will will do like CFAC will do to tell the truth and to expose what a huge scam this is it's um I'm glad people listen to this show and listen to our climate change roundtable show because those are pretty much the only places um that you you will be able to get the real truth about what's happening to the climate and what a huge scam these uh, UN climate conferences really are. And uh, just one last one last thing about it. You asked me earlier, Donnie, what, I, what I'm kind of looking forward to most about the conference, and it's already happening. And it's the fact that these environmentalists are just kind of rending their clothing and they're upset because this conference is being held in an oil uh, exporting country. In fact, the only reason, the only reason, um, you know, Dubai exists as a, as a modern country is because of oil. And the leader of their the leaders of the countries are cutting oil deals at this COP, and that is really pissing off the people who cover climate for places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. So I'm already enjoying this conference just because of all the whining and the whinging going on by the environmental left in this country, just based on where this is being held. Just to expand, I, just to expand a teeny bit on on Jim's uh, climate refugees um, take. Well, just think about it like this. A lot of the, you know, millions of the uh, people who are been coming to the United States in recent years are coming from uh, poor, undeveloped countries that don't have, you know, ready, ready access to the uh, fossil fuel use that we have here in the United States. And they're coming to the United States. People are not leaving the United States and other developed countries to go to those undeveloped countries because they want to go to a place that doesn't have, uh, you know, ready access to fossil fuels. So obviously the people in the, in the world are gravitating toward the places that have that infrastructure in place. And it would be better off if we were to say, hey, we're going to also try to put that uh, fossil fuel infrastructure in place in those countries, rather than just like Jim said, you know, handing uh, 
you know, billions of dollars to their uh, corrupt leaders who are just going to, you know, use that for their own, you know, ends. I also think it's interesting that at least as far as the United States migratory patterns go, the vast majority of people in the United States who move from mm-hmm. one place to another place go mm-hmm. where? Do they go to the colder places to escape the the you know climate change catastrophe that's in, coming their way? No, they go from the cold places to the warm places. That's where that's where everyone's going. So the people in Illinois are going to Texas. Their people are moving to Arizona. People are moving to Florida in droves. These are all places that are significantly warmer places, not colder places. So it's the exact opposite of what you would think if people are terrified of climate change and really concerned about it. And, they're not going to move to the desert, and, but that's and, where they're going. And and if Americans were were so afraid of climate change, wouldn't it be going to a place like California, which is going all in on renewables? But that's not happening. They're going to places like Florida, you know, in particular in Texas, although Texas has a thing, a mixed well, track record, in my opinion. But they're going to places where they're saying we don't believe in all this. You know, well, crap. You, you sure as heck we, aren't going to go to go to Florida where all the major cities are on the ocean, sitting on the ocean. You're not exactly. going there. Well, I, I am going to yeah. Florida and I am worried about climate change, but I'm going uh, with the plan of developing web defeat like Kevin Coster in uh, Waterworld. That's so that's mm-hmm. my long term plan. But I'm going to live on, live on stilts. <laughs> anytime there's a meeting like this the rhetoric gets amped up it's like a marketing for the event i think and, and usually there's it's some un climate reports released or the the un general secretary guy comes out and talks about how uh, we've entered the phase of global boiling you know stuff that grabs headlines well this conference is no different apparently over 200 medical journals have come together to call on the world health organization to declare an immediate emergency over climate change and my first thought was probably like yours there's over 200 medical journals out there Uh, apparently there are and they've all come to a consensus that climate change poses an existential threat to human health therefore the world health organization needs to step in so jim what are your thoughts on this because uh you know the world health organization obviously did a fantastic job with covid and surely they can tackle this climate change issue next although if it's just left up to the who they probably won't include taiwan in any of their plans but take it away jim yeah well yeah that's really super convincing I mean, leave it, leave it to the agency because they got so much about the pandemic, right? Right. I mean, and they did such a, such an honest and straightforward and transparent job telling us what was going on during the pandemic. And of course, the recommendations were all so based on science, like masking, like social distancing, which could be three feet if you were in Europe and had to be six feet if you're in the United States. Um, this, this, uh, this joking aside, this is all part of the overall scam. The idea that climate change is some sort of health threat. I mean, this actually reminds me of when you were allowed to go out on the streets and protest, even without a mask, because it's hard to shout um, about uh, how unjust and terrible the United States is with a mask over your face. So you were allowed to go out in the streets and scream in people's faces, and it was just fine. And in fact, our betters here in the United States said that uh, systemic racism was a serious health risk in the United States. Um, and this is just one of the things that I think makes normal people's eyes roll almost out of their heads. The idea that any agenda on the left is bec- becomes a health risk. Um, if your feelings are hurt because of something somebody says, 
that's a health risk to you. So we need to we need to suppress speech. Um, if if somebody actually, I'll just wrap up with this. I'm interested to hear what Chris and Justin have to say. I would agree that there is a health crisis related to the climate, and it is the mental health crisis in this country and around the world related to climate panic. There are children who really believe that the world will not be inhabitable by the time they get to be my age. By the time they get to their 50s, they won't get to their 50s because uh, the, the, the planet will not be uh, habitable. They don't want to get married. They don't want to have children. They are really depressed about the future and the present. Um, we have raised a large generation of Gretas, miserable, ill-adapted, careful, uh, panic-driven <laughs> people um, who, you know... <laughs> Easy. That's that's the real health crisis. So if the WHO wanted to say something about that, I would listen. The idea that I know, I'm sorry, Greta. Uh, the you're not a kid anymore, though. So grow up. Um, the idea that uh, that climate change cause is it creates a legitimate physical health crisis, of course, is nonsense. Uh, we're kids until we're 27. Ever since Obamacare passed, uh, no, I'm going to go to Justin next. What what what? is your thoughts of this story? Because I feel like this is almost um, yet again, another example of like a health organization jumping in on something that seems to not really be a, a health thing. And the other example that immediately jumps to mind was like the CDC labeling like gun violence, a like a health issue or something that the CDC had to like get involved with. So what is the strategy here? Like, why is this even a story? The strategy is to create an all-encompassing feeling to be to be suffocated with the sense, if you're a regular person, that if we don't do something drastic immediately mm -hmm. with every aspect of our lives, we are all going to die or many of us will die. That's, that's the point. The point is you're going to feel it from everywhere, everywhere you go. Every large agency, every quote unquote expert, everyone's going to be telling you the same thing, uh, just different versions of it, so that you have to act. And anyone who doesn't act is not only going against just one group or one particular concern. It's not just about rising sea levels or just about hurricanes or just about, you know, whatever, name the natural catastrophe. It's also about, well, you're, you're going against what the WHO says. You know, and then there's going to be more malaria. There's going to be more this and there's going to be more. there's 50 different problems that emerge from this. That, and, and there's no none of these things are ever based on actual existing evidence ever. They're all based on predictions of something that will happen in the future made by the same people and organizations that made predictions 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago mm -hmm. that didn't happen. And we're all supposed to believe these people making predictions 50 years into the future that they're going to, that they're going to get it right this time, even though they didn't get it right the last 50,000 times. And that that's the point. If you look at, and I, I would, there's this really great website. I actually, um, I should, well, maybe I shouldn't say the, the, the first part of this, but, um, <laughs> I hate the Cato Institute, generally speaking, I really don't like them, oh, but however, yeah, well, yeah, they they are our best friends other than when they try to undermine almost everything we do. But besides that, they have this great website called human progress. This is, this is a legitimately awesome website. And, and if you go to human progress, um, humanprogress.org and you go to the trends section, they have just a, a 
bunch of different, um, just a bunch of different charts and graphs. If you're watching the YouTube version of it, you can see it on the screen now. And it, all this is meant to do is to show you that almost every piece of evidence that we have shows that human beings are doing better over time. Like that's almost an, almost any metric you look at over a hundred year period, human beings are doing better. Now, one of the reasons now they don't, they don't correlate this to things related to climate change. Typically there might be something in there that does that. But what's really interesting about this is if you were going to add to any one of these charts, another piece of data, another line of data showing uh, the use of fossil fuels or warming temperatures or anything related to global warming that were supposedly bad, you would see they're completely correlated. They're moving in the exact same direction. Human flourishing has improved over the past 150 years dramatically at the same time that fossil fuel use has increased dramatically at the same time that we've seen warming and warming not not in the same dramatic way, but we've seen warming. That is also human flourishing has, has improved with the warming. There is nothing, there is nothing that shows that a, a modest warming that we've seen, that anything remotely close to what they're talking about happening in the near future that that leads to human beings doing worse, that more death, more disease, more destruction, more natural disaster. There's no evidence. And there's one in here, one chart in here that's uh, specifically about deaths related to natural catastrophes. So if climate change is causing more natural catastrophes, which I don't believe it is, but let's say that it is, let's just take that for granted, right? Okay, yeah, it is. Let's assume that's true. Why is it that we see that, over time, there are fewer, by far, way fewer deaths globally from natural disasters, even though supposedly global warming is increasing and we're seeing more natural disasters. It all doesn't right, so, make any so sense I, at all. No. I know you're I know you're like asking that in kind of like a rhetorical way, but like, can I actually answer that question? Because the the answer is, uh, I think, a little kind of revealing of the of the kind of the true nature of humanity on Earth, is that Mother Nature and Earth is a, like a deadly place, uh, just in general. Like humans' history is a survival against the natural elements. Like that's what human history has been since the beginning, and we've developed ways to protect ourselves against the storms, and we've uh, developed ways to protect ourselves against the heat and uh and the cold and all of the natural predators out there it's the natural state of humanity to try to like kind of fix our situation and the idea that if we could just get the co2 emissions right then all of this goes away and there's like no concerns about whatever is just so absurd it's it's absolutely ridiculous and, but and uh, that's the actual answer to that question yeah yeah that's that is 100 true and and it's not just that you have more reliable energy, which means more economic growth and more prosperity and all of that. That is true. 100%. That is true. And that whatever has been happening with climate change has not in any way slowed that progress down. Okay. Regardless of what you think the cause is. But in addition to that, some of the, some of the greatest innovations that human beings have seen over the past 100 years in terms of improving people's longevity and, and health and all of that stuff is is actually direct byproducts of the fossil fuel industry 
not just, you know, in terms of the energy production and things like that, which have created prosperity, but plastic. Let's just talk about plastic alone. Plastic is is one of the most important innovations that have ever happened in, in human history because of its ability to be used in all kinds of different processes, including throughout the healthcare. Can you imagine if there was no such thing as plastic when you went to the doctor? Well, plastic is a byproduct of fossil fuels. That's what it is. So the idea that fossil fuel use is somehow making the world worse is not in any way supported by literally any evidence. So how can they get up there and say that? They can right. get up there and say that because they have models that they've built that they claim at computer models that they, that they, you know, put the inputs in, they put the data in that they want to feed it. They design the model so that it gives them the result they want in many cases. And that model tells them that over a long enough period of time, based on all these different assumptions, excluding all of this really complicated other factors, contributing factors in the environment that we just don't have the ability to deal with, like cloud coverage and things like that, excluding all that stuff. If we just continue doing this, we're going to have a catastrophe because temperatures are going to go up 100 years from now. And it's going to be really bad. And it's going to lead to all these problems. Yeah, I, And like I said, I the think same it's... people made predictions 50 years ago that didn't happen. The models have all kinds of problems with them. And there's just no reason for us to blow up our entire world when there's no existing data that shows that any of these things are causing problems now. I think, I think, uh, and we've talked about this before, but I just want to say this part very briefly that uh, all the things that they've been like trying to do in the name of climate change that they were unable to succeed with uh, compared to the amount of success that they had, you know, and kind of such the authoritarian control of society during COVID. I think like that's what all of this is about. They're trying to like reinvoke those fears of COVID, where if we could just pretend that uh, climate change is the same sort of societal threat as COVID was, then everybody will get on board. So what's a good way of doing that? Hmm, maybe the World Health Organization declaring this as some sort of uh, immediate emergency. Maybe that'll do it. Donnie, I think that's Donnie you beat me to it, but um, we don't have to wonder about that because I remember vividly at the uh, beginning <clears throat> of the COVID-19 lockdowns that uh, organizations such as the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, and the World Health Organization came out and said that this is actually uh, the the model that we want to follow in the years to come for our eventual climate change lockdown. So I think that this is all um, just kind of setting the the framework and putting it in place that now now that the WHO has said, wait a second, this this is harming human health. It's no longer about saving the world. It's about, geez, if we don't do this, we're you know we're literally all going to die from like Justin said, malaria and all these, you know, terrible things that are somehow uh, increasing because of climate change. So this, this justifies any, any, you know, measure that they want to introduce in order to uh, insert uh, more control over the lives of the people that they desperately want to control. This is about degrowth. This is about exerting maximum control the COVID-19, you know, lockdowns and all that were just like a taste of that for them. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think that they, you know, are insatiable and they're lust for, for more of that. And the ultimate is if, if we don't do this, the world's going to end. If we just don't do this, the world's going to end. So you just have to do it because if we don't right. do it, the world's going to end. So, you know, <laughs> we have no, how, how can you argue against that? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. either do it or you say, or we all die. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, all right, so there, there's another element of this that I want to get to uh, before we do Davos Watch. We are going to do it, even if that means going long. 
but Michael Schellenberger and others that helped break the Twitter files. We had Michael Schellenberger on the podcast before. They have now revealed a new set of documents showing that, quote, U.S. and U.K. military contractors created a sweeping plan for global censorship in 2018. So the article that I have linked in the show notes that I believe Andy is showing on screen right now discusses the emergence of the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, or the CTIL, an anti-disinformation group that originated as a volunteer project involving data scientists, defense, and intelligence experts. The documents uh, provided by a whistleblower reveal that the CTIL's evolution into a significant player in the development of the censorship industrial complex, particularly its collaboration with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. The documents detail the Cyber Threat Intelligence League's involvement in tracking and reporting disfavored content on social media, employing offensive operations, and proposing a public-private model for censorship efforts. Doesn't that sound great, everybody? It's not just government. It's public and private. It's all everyone together, all of your best Davos friends, all coming together to censor disfavored content on social media. The article sheds light on the background of key figures of the CTIL, uh, their ties to the military and intelligence, and their ambitions to integrate their efforts into the federal government. Additionally, it explores the connections between CTIL's activities and the broader landscape of censorship and influence operations. It's a very detailed uh, uh, article that I've got there for you, but if you want to look into it further, it is in the show notes. And so, and remember, this is, these plans were from 2018. So this is pre-COVID. And it was during COVID that we witnessed the massive push for censorship of so-called disinformation. And I think the article mostly attributes this stuff or this plan to the idea of Trump and, and Brexit. But the rhetoric is there to really crack down on climate deniers. Uh, so just kind of fit it with the, the theme of this episode. And big tech already kind of plays into this a little bit already. Surely this episode has some truth about climate change warning at the bottom of the screen. But Jim, how long? I think we've been waiting for this for a little bit, but it, it almost seems inevitable. How long before they all of these people, this public-private partnership of censor, whatever, turn their sights to stifling climate realism speech? Uh, it's already happening. What, are you kidding? I mean, one of the reasons this... Um... Uh, first of all, I want to encourage everybody watching this video to please uh, leave a comment. That helps with the algorithm. Please share it. Um, please like it. Um, that's the only way we can blast through the algorithms because every time we talk about these subjects, and especially when we combine talks about the climate, talking climate realism, on top of, you, you said COVID, the word COVID has been said about 12 times in this podcast. That's going to flag the algorithm. So that's uh -huh. going to be problematic. Right. And um, And then, of course, we talk about the silencing of voices on the right especially our voices on climate realism and and pandemics and, um, you know, what Americans do every four years in November. Well, let's just say that I don't want to completely nuke the channel. So I'll just describe <laughs> it that way. Uh, th this is this has been happening. We, we've had the, you know, kind of a warning sticker underneath all of our climate videos for I don't know, what is it, five years now um, oh. with links only to Wikipedia proving that climate change is caused by uh, catastrophic climate change is, is happening and it's, it's humans are, are to blame. That's the only um, 
um, official word that is allowed to be um, considered official. You know, only alarmism is considered the uh, the real the real word, the la the final word on the subject. You're not allowed to have a discussion anymore. And so um, it's been happening. You know, there's shadow banning. That's that's a real thing. Um, saw a story just today, as you mentioned, Donnie. There's the Twitter files. Um, that Schellenberger and, and Matt Taibbi and others, um, thanks to Elon Musk giving um, them access to the basically the the files that he inherited when he bought Twitter to uncover the conspiracy on that and other social media networks to suppress, if not outright ban, speech that is not advancing leftist narratives. And so it was happening on Twitter, it was happening on Facebook, and now they've just released the Facebook file. I'm sorry, the YouTube files which talks about how that has been happening on this on on this platform of YouTube and we've we've known that for years for years and years and years when one of our videos goes goes legitimately viral like more than 100,000 views um i am 100 i am convinced it's a complete accident and actually it's the it's the algorithms working as they're supposed to and then we've had videos go like this and then suddenly overnight gone nothing and that's because a human being who is on with the censorship agenda goes in there and turns off the algorithm so that we are no longer showing up what would what would be having naturally showing up in the feeds of people who are interested in this topic. And so again as you said it ramped up during covid because it's misinformation to have any questions at all to the to our government overlords on how they're ruining and controlling our lives based on a disease in which 99% of people survive with no problems. And if you had any questions about that, you were suppressed. But again, this was happening before that. And it is because on principle, if you were on the left, you are against freedom of speech. You are also against freedom of assembly. You're basically against the U.S. Constitution, which exists to make sure that we can speak, that we can be heard, and that we can gather, and that we can speak our minds. And people speaking their minds means they are disobeying the agenda of the left, or they might disobey the agenda of the left. They might encourage others to question the agenda of the left. And the left, for as much power as they hold, will not allow that. So the fact that this kind of started up about a decade ago and continues to ramp up is the least surprising news I have heard in a decade. Uh, Jim Rant, everyone, trademarked. Uh, Chris, Justin, I wanted, I want to get to Davos watch. We don't have that much time left. Uh, any comments on this particular story? There's so much information there. I feel like I've just barely scratched the surface. I mean, a lot of it is just kind of elaborating on kind of the stuff we know, but it just seems like the further you dig into it, the more of, uh, of like this, not just being like, Oh, it's just people at Twitter just decided to do something. It's like, no, there's like the infrastructure there. Like there's an actual like developing infrastructure to do this in a, in a controlled effort. But uh, do you have any, any, any thoughts on the story? I just think it goes to show how, uh, how not confident they are in their position, because if they were confident in their position, they would open and invite a vigorous debate. But since they are, I, I believe so um, worried about their positions being, uh, you know, being being shown for their, you know, their their false, you know, falseness and that they need to do whatever they can to prevent that. So to me, it's a sign of weakness. Falseosity is the word you were looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Justin, thoughts or I'm going to do Davos watch. Uh, 
Yeah, look, I think this problem is going to get worse. I think it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And as long as we have the people in power who are in power right now, it is. And and when you actually take a deep dive into the the various things that these organizations talk about when they all get together at these big conferences like the Global Government Summit and places <laughs> like that, the great narrative, you know, event and and those things, and they talk about the need for reigning in misinformation, um, you know, and the importance of, of having a, a sort of global code of conduct, a global code of ethics on the internet. And, and there needs to be some sort of international agency that is responsible for doing these sorts of, th- I mean, when you start reading the details of it, you realize that they are just getting warmed up with this kind of stuff. It is only going to get worse we need a president who's going to stand up to these international institutions and say, you guys can do whatever the heck you want in Europe and, you know, China. I don't, we don't care, but we're not going to do that here. We, we Herman don't Supreme. Do And unfortunately we don't have that president right now. We have the opposite of that. Um, and, uh, it's, it's only going to change with, uh, either a sudden change of heart in Joe Biden. Um, and I do mean a heart attack. <laughs> or actually didn't mean heart attack, but, but it worked really well that joke. Um, or or <laughs> it's going to take a a someone else winning the next election. That's just the reality of the situation. Uh, yes, they need to stand up to the globalists and say the rent is too damn high, right? Um, all right, yeah, let's go. We got a few minutes here. Where's our bumper music? Let's do some Davos watch. folks welcome to episode eight of davos watch where we keep an eye on the global elites from davos to the un and all the other advocates of global fascism and totalitarian technocracy this week i want to highlight a report that the united nations food and agriculture organization the fao will be releasing a roadmap with global food recommendations during the cop 28 climate summit in dubai So reading from an article discussing the matter, it says in a first of its kind document, the agency will call upon nations that, quote, overconsume meat to limit consumption to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The UN's FAO claims that 14.5% of all anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions come from the livestock sector. So despite the fact that the U.S. agriculture um, only accounts for 1.4% of greenhouse gas emissions. And despite the fact that China is currently producing more greenhouse gas emissions than the rest of the developed world combined, it's you that they want to limit, and it's you that they want to eat less meat. This should remind you of other plans that we've discussed on this podcast before that have come out of organizations that are aligned with these sort of globalist agendas. We discussed in episode one of Davos Watch, the C40 Cities Plan that established, quote unquote, ambitious goals of zero meat for the citizens in urban centers. 
Also, let's not forget about that seven-hour CNN Climate Town Hall event where uh, that took place, I don't know, several years ago, where some candidates like Kamala Harris endorsed the idea of changing the nutrition guidelines in order to discourage meat consumption. I remind you all of the uh, remind you of all of these things to make it clear that this isn't a straw man example. That this is very much part of the plans of all these globalist types out there and all of the wannabe central planners of the world. So now, obviously, meat is a source of protein, a major source of protein for most Americans. So with our meat consumption limited, as the UN reports uh, advocates for, uh, or perhaps completely zeroed out, as the C40 Cities report uh, cites as their ambitious goals, how are we going to get our protein? How are we going to do it, everybody? Bugs. If you uh, listen to the In the Tank podcast enough, you've likely heard Jim Lakely doing a terrible Klaus Schwab accent talking about how you will eat the bugs. But uh, let's get real here. Are Davos types really endorsing people switching their diets to crickets and mealworms? I mean, if you Google World Economic Forum and insects, you'll see a slew of articles uh, fact-checking or debunking the idea of this bug diet idea being part of the agenda. Some articles will suggest it's nothing more than a conspiracy theory in their headlines. So why don't we take a little bit of a look? And Andy, I'll ask you to get that video ready. Exhibit one, let's watch this little video. The video comes from Davos 2023, is recorded during a CNBC panel on food security, featuring Isabel... Toledano something or another, who is the CFO of Insect, which is a company that specializes in uh, bug protein. So let's go ahead and play that clip. I need to produce 70% more food with 5% of arable lands. And I truly believe that technology can play a part in the same way that we found new ways to produce energy in a different way. We can produce protein in a different way. And so... Insect is the world leader of insect protein, and we have a solution that helps with fertilizer, and it's uh, chemical-free, but as well as feeding animals. So in a first step, you would reduce, basically, the climate impact of feeding animals today so that people can eat in a more preserving planet type of way, and then eventually feeding people also with insects is part of the solution. Because... <clears throat> You mentioned reducing the calorie intake. I can't believe you just said that. We all know that we need to become more uh, conscious of eating more vegan product and less meat protein. But you also know, and nutritionists will tell you, that as part of your diet, all of us to be healthy need to also have an intake of animal protein. And of all animal, insects are actually the ones that are more climate friendly. That's right. So she is discussing the idea that we can use insect protein to feed livestock. But then she says, and I'll quote her because, you know, she had a bit of an accent there. And then eventually feeding people also with insects is part of the solution. Or perhaps we could do a simple search on the World Economic Forum website. Uh, Andy, if you want to do this, feel free to do it. But if you do that, you'll find a bunch of articles touting eat zibugs as a potential solution for CO2 emissions in the agricultural sector. You'll find a whole bunch of articles. One titled, Could Insect Farms Meet Our Food Demands of the Future? Another one, Good Grub. 
why we need uh, why we might be eating insects soon or burgers bugs and the shift to a new way of eating or another article why we need to give insects the role they deserve in our food systems or my personal favorite five reasons why eating insects could reduce climate change or another one worms for dinner europe backs insect-based food in a bid to promote alternative protein and in that article they talked about how the um the equivalent of like the fda and the european union greenlit the idea of using larval stage beetles as uh, as food so that's you know something that is is happening there and it's not all rhetoric either that uh, you start seeing this becoming more and more of a thing. There's an article that uh, I've cited before from the uh, uh, CBC, which is massive cricket processing facility comes online in London, Ontario. And just recently Googling this, I saw that there is another massive insect protein plant coming online soon in Asia. And also Tyson Foods, one of the biggest meat producers in the world, just announced a partnership with a firm that specializes in insect protein. So the trend line is there. The World Economic Forum has been advocating this sort of thing for years. We're starting to see more of this popping up in industry and now established firms in the industry. Tyson Foods are getting on board. And just to drill down a little bit more into Tyson Foods in 2020. Tyson Foods announced the Coalition of Global Protein, a multi-stakeholder initiative at guess where they announced this uh, this coalition. Davos Summit, hosted by the World Economic Forum back in 2020. So I think that I established pretty solidly that this is real. It's not a conspiracy theory. It doesn't need to be fact-checked by uh, you know NBC or something like that. And that's good enough for me for this segment of Davos Watch. But I do want to uh, do a little bit of speculation about where this trend line goes next. So first off, I think the trend will continue for a while in the realm of established firms getting more and more on board with this sort of thing. The infrastructure is already there. ESG alone is surely enough to incentivize other companies to chase this so-called sustainable path. Beyond that, I think we'll see increased government action that will push society further down this path towards, uh, you know, insect meat. At first, there will be restrictions and regulations that make livestock cultivation more expensive. That way, that insect protein will be increasingly cost effective as an alternative. And then we'll see direct subsidies that promote the production of insect protein. And all of this government action will be proposed and enacted with climate change as its justification. But uh, this is the this is the end of uh, my monologue for this edition of Davos Watch. I'm going to continue to try to do an episode of Davos Watch every week in an effort to shine a light on the plans of the globalist technocratic tyrants and the wannabe central planners of the world. Justin, this is a topic that when I first started hearing about this eat the bugs thing, probably a year, year and a half ago, I was like, oh, okay, you know, this this has the, the aura of one of those like chain emails that gets forwarded to you by your aunt or something like that. Let me actually look into it a little bit. And then I was blown away by just the sheer amount of, uh, 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 you know, articles on the world economic forum and presentations done about this like it's 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 real it's real folks what are your thoughts on this yeah it's really this is one of the more one of the stranger things that you'll find because although you can make you, you know so if, if i'm trying to approach this from somebody who's 
like a radical environmentalist type or whatever, or you're, you're an elite and you're just doing what the radical environmentalists tell you for whatever reason. It seems like this thing is the most extreme thing that you can pick that has the least meaningful impact. Like, like, and, and that makes it bizarre. It makes it a bizarre choice. Like it's obviously people don't want to do it. Obviously people find it gross because if they didn't find it gross, we'd already be eating lots of bugs. The reason we don't is because we think it's gross, right? right. So so to choose that when it has such a small relative impact on the total, you know, on the issue itself, even if you accept all the premises that they buy into, is what makes it so strange. And I still, I truly do not understand why they've thought this was a good idea. To, to go all in on this, I, but they have. And as you pointed out, the evidence is overwhelming that this is a growing movement amongst the elites and amongst people in industry and elsewhere to try to move more toward, you know, bugs as food, insects as food. And it's just so bizarre. One thing I wanted to pull up because I want to prove that this is not, you know, I want, I want to prove the point that this really doesn't make sense in terms of even if you accept their, their underlying premises. So the reason why they say that this uh, eating meat is so problematic is because of the methane emissions associated with having livestock. Okay. That's the primary reason for it. Right. Um, what's really interesting though, is that there is no, see methane emissions are a greenhouse gas and, and, um, some, uh, scientists, many scientists believe that they have a greater methane emissions have a greater impact on global warming than CO2 emissions do. So even though there are not a lot of methane emissions relative to total greenhouse gas emissions, they have an outsized impact. So if we can reduce methane emissions, we can lower global warming over time. That's the theory, right? Well, methane emissions over time in the United States have been going down already, even without people switching to bugs. So from 1990 to 2021, which is the most recent year we have data, they dropped by about 14% total methane emissions. The largest chunk of methane emissions is not from agriculture. It's from industry. Okay. So the largest chunk of it doesn't even come from agriculture and it's been dropping anyway. What makes this even weirder and crazier is so we've already seen methane emissions go down by about 14 percent in the last few years it's also been going down so we're trending down recently as well uh in terms of the agricultural sector right what makes it even more strange though is that china's methane emissions china's methane emissions have skyrocketed over the same period of time so much so that even if we eliminated all meat consumption all meat consumption in the United States, everybody in the United States stopped eating meat. That whatever you would save in methane emissions would basically go away in like a year or two of just yep. China continuing its increase. Do you know it has it's a bigger methane uh, footprint than livestock? Uh, no. What? Tell me. Rice patties. Do you know Rice that? patties. I did not know that. But that and that's And that's kind of the point. Like, it doesn't, it makes no sense to choose meat. Like that makes no sense. It's politically, it doesn't make sense. And then when you factor in all of these other things, just to go back to the China thing, China's methane emissions over the past 30 years have gone up 75%. 75%. They are now dwarfing the United States. It, like the United States is a, is a fraction of what China has in methane emissions. So 
what we do here in the United States with eating our hamburgers or whatever, even if we got rid of all meat consumption in the United States, it would have no meaningful impact on global warming, even if you believe all of the other assumptions that have to go along with that argument. And so why would you choose something? This is, and I guess this is my point. It's a legit, it's a serious question because I truly do not understand the answer to it. If you're an elite, you're a Western elite, you're Joe Biden, you're the Davos people, whatever. Why would you choose one of the most politically unpopular things you could possibly think of asking people to stop eating meat for Americans, that's like, you know, that's a huge, huge problem. There are people who would rather amputate a leg than stop eating meat, okay? So to do that, a wildly politically unpopular thing, also that you can have zero impact on global right. warming, even if you buy all the other assumptions, and, and even have zero in, uh, impact or very little impact on, on methane emissions specifically. It just, it just makes... No sense. Methane emissions aren't even the primary thing in greenhouse gas emissions. The CO2 emissions are a bigger part of it. So none of this makes any sense. And I can't understand why elites would ask regular people to do something that they hate in such an extreme way for almost no payoff. And you could I, say, well, it's some cronious, corrupt thing. And it's like, but there's no money in I bugs. Not that I, much anyway, relative to other things. I, <laughs> Go ahead. I, no, yeah, I, I, I think I, I have a, uh, a guess as to, why, as to why they're doing this. I think it's uh, simply because if they can humiliate people to the degree to make them eat bugs instead of meat, I think they think that they can get them to do anything. I think it's really just, just that simple. And Donnie and Justin, I mean, you guys remember the early 2000s shows like Fear Factor, where one of the worst things to do was to eat, was to eat bugs. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And people, people, you know, would would turn down. Yeah, right. Tons they would jump of off cliffs. Because, right, they would because, set themselves because, on fire, but they right. wouldn't eat a mealworm. Right. But but <laughs> I, I think I think that that what uh, the calculation that they made is, man, if we can get people to stop eating meat and literally shove bugs in their mouth, we'll get them to do anything in the name of you climate so change. Funny. I really I, think that that's what I, this is about. I've actually seen a couple of stories and take this with a grain of salt because this could just be like online trolling or something like that. But it, it appeared to me, uh, based on a couple of things that I'd seen, that there are already like PETA type groups that are like sounding the alarm on some of these like insect protein manufacturing plants because of their mistreatment of bugs. So if they think they're going to like end around <laughs> like you know, like the, the PETA people and all these like animal activists by just like targeting bugs, I think they might have another... Another no, but 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 I, I I strongly think that this is about you know changing people's behaviors. If you can get people to change their diet, that's one of the things that people are most probably least likely to change. You can get them to change their you know the, the car they drive or the, like how they live, you know, and, and just anything. If you can, get yeah, people to yeah, maybe this is one of those negotiation in their things. mouth. Maybe I think this that, is what that's they're, why they're I think setting they, the negotiation they, high exactly. Exactly. And they're like, all right, all right, you can eat meat, but you got to give away your car. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's actually probably one of the better explanations that I've heard for why that might right. be the best explanation I've heard. Yeah. All right, we're yeah. we're 15 minutes long. Let's let's wrap it up here, gentlemen. Do you got any uh, any anything that you want to get off your chest? Any final anecdotes? Anything? Hearing nothing. I'm gonna wrap it up, folks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of In the Tank Podcast. 
Join us every Thursday at noon central time where we are live streaming on Facebook and Twitter and Rumble and YouTube. You can join the conversation through your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. If you're an audio-only listener, probably catching the show on a Friday or later, join us on Thursdays at noon. Be a part of the show. And if you are those audio-only listeners, leave a review for us. It'd be greatly appreciated. If you are one of those that are watching us, make sure to drop a like, leave a comment under the video, share the content, subscribe if you haven't already. All of those things help break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. If you'd like, you can follow us on X at in the tank pod or you can send us your comments questions and suggestions to the show by emailing us at in the tank podcast at gmail.com jim lakely had to jump off but uh you can find him on social media and all of that and surely he would pitch heartland.org for more information justin haskins where can the fine people find you at justin t haskins on x that's the only That's place right. they should go now. Forget about oh, all the others. You're consolidating. Got it. Got it. I am, yeah. Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? Partly.org and stopitsocialism.com. Fantastic. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>